Lord, we thank you for all that you are. Lord, it's only because of who you are that we are able to experience love or fellowship or friendship or peace or comfort or pleasure, any of these things in this world. But Lord, we um, also are born into a world that draws us away from you because it is corrupted. And Lord, we, we need your truth. We need um, the amazing truth of who you are and who you created us to be and, and how you allow us to grow in you uh, because we are so prone to believe lies. Lord, I just pray that you would bless your truth this morning. Lord, I pray that you would make your words um, my words, that you would just allow us to dive into what you have for us this morning and to understand you better, to understand how we were created to be better. Lord, I just praise you for these things and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we are looking this morning at James 4, 1 through 6. Next week, we're going to be looking at um, verses 6 through 10 of James 4. And so if this week is a spiritual EKG, next week is a spiritual CPR. What has God given us as a spiritual CPR? In 1969, Hurricane Camille was set to crash into the Mississippi coast. Authorities of the area began to warn people in the area there was a, an uh, advised evacuation. Uh, somehow it wasn't a mandatory type situation. People could choose to leave or not. But they were certainly going around and warning people about the severity of this storm that was coming. In an apartment complex just about uh, 200 feet or so off of the beach, the police came across 20 or so people that were held up in this apartment building. And I guess the thought was, well, we'll have, you know, we have a second floor that we can get to maybe. I'm, I'm not even sure if there was a second floor. But it was 20 or so people, and they were throwing in a hurricane party. And their plan was that they were going to ride out the storm. They were going to experience what it meant to go through a hurricane. And they thought, we'll be just fine. They laughed off the police you know, maybe they thought, we've got plenty of water, we'll board up the windows, we're just going to party until a hurricane goes through, we'll have plenty of, you know, stories to tell our kids. Um, the storm hit at 10.15 at night. The winds were over 200 miles per hour. And the waves from the ocean were over 20 feet high. It still is one of the largest storms that has ever hit the continental United States. The next day, uh, searchers, um, not the next day necessarily, but in the coming days, people started combing through the rubble. And it, as you can imagine, the apartments had been leveled by the force of this hurricane. One out of this group of people survived from their hurricane party. Um, in a lot of ways, we hear from Scripture that uh, life is much more tumultuous than the world can make us feel like or make us want to make us think that it is. Uh, there's warning signs all around us. Scripture gives us warning signs of what is going on in our hearts. And many of those warning signs we can see in our lives as they play out. We're looking at James 4, 1 through 6. And he says, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and can not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong, wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. First thing that we see in this passage is our symptoms. The symptoms that we are uh, putting on display in our lives. It's in order for us to be able to kind of do a self-check of our lives. And he asked this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He describes the people as you fight and you quarrel. He even goes as far as to say, um, so you murder. And, and as now the, the people that James was writing to most likely were not murdering each other. But he's giving the further extent of, of this spirit of fighting and quarreling that what it eventually leads to. And you can think of all of the things that progress from fight and quarreling and disputes. Um, whether it be murder or whether it be nations fighting against each other, um, whether it be, uh, well really, um, I'm going to get really geeky on you here. My, Mar- uh, philosopher Martin Buber described this as the I-it relationship. We get into a relationship with other people where instead of, well, it's an I-it. In other words, I am a person, but you are an it. And I don't think of you as having feelings. I don't think of you as having needs. I don't think of you as having uh, goals or, or a future. As opposed to what he calls the I-thou relationship that we are meant to be in of mutual respect of what we talked about last week of unconditional love and reciprocity of that love but if you can think of all of the manifestations in our world of fighting and quarreling and where it leads to and that's why he leads to this idea of murder James is writing to Jewish believers at the beginning of James it says he's writing to the church but he says to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And that was his way of saying to the, to, the, um, to the Jewish members of the church, mainly Jewish members here. And um, as we've seen maybe as you've experienced reading in the Old Testament, uh, having been given the law, the, the Jewish believers, just like the Jews in the Old Testament, would have been very um, prone to write off certain things in their lives because they were Jewish. And maybe they felt that they were kind of some sort of special Christian because they were Jewish and also had, so they had that connection with Christ but also had received Christ as their savior. So he, was, he had spoken through the book of James of different ways that quarreling and arguing had affected these people. First he's spoken about how they would handle church disagreements they've spoken about the situation where in some of their churches the poor were put in you know kind of put in the back of the church but the rich people as they brought in they were asked to come and sit in the front and and you know a big deal was made out of them Uh, he talked about the relationship between employers and employees and the and the strife that was was involved with that in, in the form of masters and slaves. He talked about their personal arguments with each other and their agendas, describing as selfish ambition. And so he's, he's described these things throughout the book of James, and he's kind of bringing these things to what I feel like James 4, 1 through 10, is kind of that, that pinnacle uh, point that climax in the book of James of, of what he's really getting at and what he really wants them to look at in all of these situations. What is the source of the quarrels and the arguments of the people that he's writing to? And, um, but quarrels and arguments in a lot of ways are just one example still of the manifestation, the symptoms that we experience. Right? And we'll, we'll get to that a little bit more further here. Um, so the arguments, the fights, the general problems in our relationships with each other are the symptoms 
of other things. Symptoms of the real problem. Another symptom he brings up, he says, you ask and you do not receive. Speaking of their prayers. Explaining unanswered prayers are the symptom of a deeper problem. Now, this is kind of touchy because we don't want to have this hyper-spiritual idea that, well, you know, boy... When Joe prays, God listens. He must be super spiritual. You know, things get answered. Scripture does tell us um, that the prayers of a righteous man will avail. And, And so we'll see this a little bit, but he does bring up here in James 4 this idea you ask and you do not receive. Because why? Well, we'll get to that in the diagnosis and you can pretty much read it there. You ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he's getting to the problem. So he moves from our relationship with each other to our relationship with God. Symptoms of the same problem. Symptoms of the same problem. Being on a different page than God is, really. So he gets to the diagnosis here. Um, But uh, prior to that, um, my kids enjoyed uh, swinging on a tire swing few weeks ago. It was the, actually the tire swing. I'm embarrassed Rod here. The tire swing out in front of uh, Rod, Rod Curran's office. You know. And uh, just having a good time. Uh, I think one of them would get on the swing and the other three would push it, you know, hold it up as far as they could and then let go and, you know, hear the, the kids screaming and stuff. I pulled up to Rod's office uh, dealing with real estate stuff and uh, the, the tree was cut down. It was leveled, and I was disappointed to see this. I was just like, oh, great. Well, I guess if I have to come out here again, I'm not bringing my kids with me, you know. <laughs> I thought that was a great idea. Put a tire swing out in front of your office, right? So I was just like, why in the world was this tree cut down? And the wood was stacked there by the parking lot. And um, so I went over and kind of looked at the wood, and I saw pretty quickly why it was that the tree was cut down. I actually brought a piece of the wood with me today. So here it is on the outside. You know, this is, I don't know if this was the limb that my kids were, were uh, swinging on. But, I mean, do you see that? Have any of you guys had an had a arborist or something come into your house and be like, that tree needs to come down? And you're like, what are you talking about? It looks great. Look at the bark. Look, it had new limbs growing out of it. What's the problem here? But an arborist could look at that tree and know that there was a problem deep within. And guys, this is what James is communicating because do you remember what Scripture tells us in Hebrews about the strength of Scripture? It's sharp as a double-edged sword able to divide between bone and marrow, able to know the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. In other words, we may be just doing fine on the outside, but Scripture tells us the condition of the inside, the condition of the heart. And isn't it true so often that maybe a brother or sister comes to us and says, you can't see it, because you look fine on the outside. But brother, I got to tell you, you got a problem on the inside. And that's what James is getting at here. He gets to the diagnosis. <clears throat> so what causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have. So you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you not, you do not have because you do not ask. So the problem is not found in that other person. It's not an issue of, well, if they didn't act that way, I wouldn't have to treat them that way. The problem is not with our kids. Well, if they just would stop, you know, bickering and fighting with each other, you know, I wouldn't have to respond that way. The problem in our relationships is not with the other person. 
It's not on this surface. God is telling us the diagnosis is it's a problem of our desires. In fact, he's pretty much saying anytime there is fights and quarrels, the two parties that are involved need to stop and say, what is it that I am wanting that I'm not getting and so I'm willing to see this person as an it, not as a thou. He describes this person as being at war with themselves even. You know, notice that he says, um, your passions are at war within you. Man, it's not fun to live with somebody that's at war within themselves, but the fact is, guys, we are. You know, this isn't some, he's not describing some, you know, some other guy. He's describing all of us because we all have arguments and quarrels and fights. We all are in this situation. And in that situation, we need to look where? We need to look at our desires and at our heart is what he's saying here. When he says you covet and cannot obtain, the literal term there is you lust. You lust. So we change our focus from love to lust. We change our focus from what can I give to this person to what can I take in this situation. You lust and you cannot obtain. And so you murder. Also, as I mentioned, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Our heart is also the problem with our unanswered prayer. Um, Christ has told us, whatever you ask in my name or according to my character, it will be given to you. So the idea is that even in our prayers, we are... It's, a, it's an issue of a process of God slowly changing us from the inside out. And we see the evidence of that, that as we pray, our prayers more and more become praying His will, praying that He would be honored, praying that He would be glorified. I can remember C.S. Lewis uh, saying to a friend when he was praying for his wife Joy to be healed, his friend asked him why he still prays. He says, Prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. Prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. So some would ask, well, isn't God, didn't he promise to give me the desires of my heart? Aren't I supposed to follow my heart? Well, that full verse, Psalm 37, 4, is this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. See the process there of changing? Now, it's not a matter of, like, like last week, this is a horizon idea. This is what we're moving toward. This isn't like, okay, I'm going to go home and delight myself in the Lord. You know, this is what he's moving us toward. This is how he wants to change us. He wants to change the very thing that we delight ourselves in. And as he does that slowly, we start to see the desires of our heart coming to a reality. You know, some people, I don't, I, I just share this with you to um, not to promote myself or, or praise myself here, but I've heard a number of people say, and I so appreciate this, this ministers to me and to my wife. I've heard people say, you know, you have picked your family up and moved across the country to be here. And, and we are so, so thankful for that. And to tell you the truth, I, I brought that up to Kelly and I just said, you know, honey, that was nothing. That's nothing. And to celebrate with her, look at how God changes our hearts. That when we want to serve him, when we want to be in the center of his will, when we want to be pleasing him where we live and what we're doing to move across the country is nothing. We're chasing what we desire. We're chasing what we delight in. Now in the process, does it rub off a couple of, of you know, rough parts of you? Yeah, absolutely. It's stressful and it's, it's you know, odd and you're in a, 
unusual place and you yell at your kids a little bit, you yell at each other a little bit and you stop and you're like, okay, what's the problem here? Here. So, but, but to chase after a delight that he has put in your heart is one of the greatest things. And I know some of you guys would exp- describe that too. And Martin Luther put it this way. He said, love God and then sin all you want. Love God and sin all you want. Why? Because when you're filled with the love for God, you don't want to be separated from Him. You don't, or, or to be to lose that fellowship with Him. And so, and, and so, our our desire to walk away from Him decreases. Now, we don't get to this point where we never want to sin, or that we never sin. That's not what I'm describing. I'm describing this is the process that He has us on. Um, I'd like to focus for for a little bit here on the heart and the importance of the heart and the incline of the heart. Uh, Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart. Other translations say, guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. So what is within our heart, what our heart desires is really where our actions are going to come from. Uh, You've heard me say before that the heart is like a rudder of the ship that you can fight against to try to go in one direction, but if you don't change the angle of the rudder, then you're just going to be fighting your whole life to that. God wants to work on the rudder. And he has a motivation. There's a reason why he wants to change our heart. And I'll get to that here in a bit. It glorifies him more. I'll explain that. He says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Um, Another verse about the importance of the heart says, the good person out of the good, this is Christ speaking, the good person out of the good treasures, uh, sorry, start that again. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. I want you to notice here something that's really interesting about this verse. It doesn't say the good person out of his good heart. Does it? The good person out of the good treasure of his heart. In other words, when you treasure Christ, he's the good treasure of your heart, good actions flow from your life. And that's what James is saying. James is walking backwards. Look at the fights and the quarrels. Look at where they're coming from. And Christ is talking from, when you treasure me, that the good treasure is what the good flows out of. And, and you know, he's speaking, interestingly, to the same ethnic The same people, the Jewish people, who had grown up with the law, who have this stumbling block of, but we are God's people to deal with. And he's trying to work with them in much the same way that James is working with the recipient of his letter to say, hey, the behavior flows out of the heart. Stop focusing just on your behavior. Stop trying to clean up just your behavior. You got to look at where the behavior is coming from. Behavior on the outside is of what is going on on the inside. Um, I can remember listening to, to one of my favorite preachers. And he was sharing, kind of in answer to a question, he was sharing how his daily devotions go about. He was sharing what he does in order to grow on a daily basis. And there's something that struck me. And he said, I begin by asking the Lord to incline my heart toward him. To incline my heart toward him. And I was just kind of like, what a strange verb. Incline my heart. And I started kind of studying a little bit and meditating on what does it mean to incline my heart toward him. And it pops up in scripture. Um, for instance, here we go. Genesis 6-5. When God is describing the condition of the world, 
the condition of the heart of the people of the world leading up to the flood, says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you have the NIV, you've read this as the inclination of the heart of man. The incline of his heart. And the ESV describes it as the intention of the thoughts of his heart. So in other words, where do I want to go with this? All right? Other idea of the incline of my heart. Deuteronomy 31. For I know, for I know that this is God describing the Hebrews as they're entering into the land of Canaan, the promised land, and he was explaining how it is that he knew that they were going to turn away from him to the idols of the people of the, of the land of Canaan. And this is his explanation. For I know what they are inclined to do even today. Even on the day that they were saying, we'll follow you, Lord. I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. The incline of their heart he's speaking of here. Now this is not a political statement. Okay? Please don't use it as you with your friends as one. Ecclesiastes 10.2 A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. It's not a political statement here. But anyways, do you see here that it's looking at the incline of the heart. Well, what is an incline here, okay? Think of this here. We have a seesaw, right? Our hearts are like a seesaw. The ball in the middle of the seesaw there represents our behavior, okay? Our behavior. When we've chosen to follow Christ, God has made us his children and he's slowly making us more like Christ And so he's slowly, from day to day, allowing our hearts to incline more to him. As we ask him, incline my heart to you. As you can see on this, the seesaw could lean toward self or it could lean toward God. It could be inclined toward self or inclined toward God. So the heart inclined toward self means God's desires are not my desires. God's desires are not mine desires. My desires, what I naturally want, are my desires. I want security more than God. I want um, intimacy more than anything. I want pleasure more than anything. I want um, adventure more than anything. All these things are not bad things. But my heart is inclined toward myself. And so I'm going to go after these things at any cost. Selfish behavior is what usually results. So when the heart is inclined toward God, God's desires are, are, are enabled to be my desires. I am desiring what God desires. Godly behavior is what usually results. My, my purpose in sharing this is is to point out the location of the original problem. Okay, this is a picture on, of any given moment of what our heart, the, the, the condition that our heart is in. So we don't have to wait until the temptation hits. We don't have to wait until the trial comes to know the condition or to know how we're going to respond. God has said, I've seen the incline of their heart and I know what it is that they're going to do. So looking at this in this way, God graciously brings consequence into our lives. God graciously many times doesn't give us what we want. In fact, might even bring a type of discipline into our lives that says, hey, I'm going to keep you from getting what you really want here to try to wake you up to see this doesn't work. This doesn't work to ultimately achieve what it is that you really need. And hopefully 
what it's going to bring us to is a place where we realize, you know what, I am the problem. I am the problem. The problem resides in here. I need something to fundamentally change about me because I've got what God desires from me and I've got what I desire out of my life. And I, in my best moment, I would admit, I don't want to win this battle because it's going to mean everything that I've been warned about that would come from my life if I do. So he wants to bring us to the place where we realize I am the problem. And this is not popular in a culture that tells us follow your heart. Right? I mean, the moral to most movies is follow your heart. So, Our prayer then can focus on the incline of our hearts. We can pray, Lord, today will you incline my heart toward you. I have desires that are going to take me to a place that's not healthy for me, that's not healthy for my relationships. I I have problems with my heart, Lord, that if I'm left just to myself and just to what I want, I'm going to screw up my life royally. Will you make your desires my desires? Lord, I am the problem here. Let's look at this in in terms of why do we punish a child? Why would we as parents bring punishment on our child that we love? Why Why would we stop their day from going just the way they want it to go and say, you know what? I have to bring pain into your life. Or I have to take a privilege away from you. Why would we disrupt their perfect day where they're getting everything that they want? And the answer is this. That is not how God would deal with you. Because he loves you. So what do we do? We create consequence in our child's life. And the ultimate goal in that, folks, is for them to come to a place of saying, you know what, I keep going there and I keep running into this consistent consequence. You know, I smack my my sibling and this keeps happening to me. And hopefully they can come to a place of asking, why is it that I keep doing this? And hopefully they'll arrive at the same answer that God wants to bring us to. I am the problem. There's a problem inside here. There's a problem in what it is that I want. I want comfort at any cost. I want pleasure at any cost. I want control at any cost. So the goal in our parenting, the goal in our discipline is hopefully that our kids would turn their attention to their hearts. And it's a great wonderful, sacred moment that when we as parents can sit down with our child and say, you know what? You deal with the same thing that I deal with. And it's that I have a selfish heart. I have a heart that desires things that God does not desire for me. That doesn't bring glory to Him. You know what I have to do? I have to ask Him to change my heart. And that's what you need to ask God to do also. Because parents, we're working on the same things that our kids are working on. And if they come from your genes, they're really working on the same things <laughs> that you're working on. And, and we can draw them to our hearts. That's the goal of parenting. That's the goal of discipline. Now, It's a challenge because we've got our hearts in the mix, right? Because, oh, you've stepped on my comfort or you've stepped on my need for appreciation or you've stepped on my feeling like I'm a successful parent. And so we've got God dealing with our hearts while at the same time we're trying to deal with their behavior. And God's trying to deal with our hearts and say, oh, you know, you're getting to their behavior now because they've stepped on your desires. 
And again, what does that bring us back to? That brings us back to James. The diagnosis of what causes these quarrels and these fights among you. It's in here. On all parties. And you can't work on somebody else's heart. You just can't. Sorry for my snorting. So the prognosis isn't good. The prognosis is not good. This is the prognosis that he gives. You know, the prognosis is where is this illness going to go? And James tells us, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I, I don't know about you, but when you read James, like statements pop out from like nowhere. It's like, where is he going with this? You know, and prior to studying this, I was kind of like, whoa, he shifted directions here. No, he didn't. Because what is he dealing with here? He's still dealing with, when he says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What is he still dealing with? He's still dealing with desires. He's still dealing with our hearts. So what in the world is the world? When he says, friendship with the world, whoever wishes to be like the world, what in the world is the world? Um, It's the unredeemed way of living. The way people think or act when Christ is not changing them. It's the way that the majority of the people that you're surrounded by on a regular basis think and act. It's, it's the extent or the direction that that way of living goes, i.e. Hollywood or um, you know, Grand Theft Auto or something like that. Um, he's saying friendship with the world makes himself an enemy with God. So our prognosis is further division and further distance in our relationship with God. The problems in our relationship with God. I want you to, in your Bible here, uh, wishes may not be the term that you have here. I want you to underline, therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Boy, I'll tell you, sometimes you don't present the symptoms of something, but you're already presenting where it's going. Uh, and so by that, the doctor might say, yeah, you don't have this symptom, this symptom, but you, this is where your body's going, so this must be what you have. Um, who is not guilty of wishing to be like the world? I really wish that James had not used that word. Because I think I might be able to make it through this passage without, you know, having to apply it to me, maybe. You know, maybe if, if me and the kids and me and Kelly have had a good, you know, couple days or something like that, you know. But whoever wishes... To be a friend of the world? I mean, it's not whoever's out carousing with their buddies after work. It's whoever wishes that they could. And parents and teenagers, what is the number one response when, uh, when a teenager is told, I don't want you listening to that music because of what they talk about? Or I don't want you watching that movie because of what they're doing in that movie. But dad, it's not like I'm going to do those things. It's not like I'm going to talk that way. James cuts down deep. But is it going to make you wish that you could? Remember how important the heart is? It's to be guarded. And isn't it, isn't it those things that the Bible says, ah, stay away from these, you know, millions of websites on the computer. Well, what's wrong with just clicking on something? Because it's going to affect your heart. Stay away from going here or seeing this or listening to this. What's it really going to matter? I don't, I don't, you know, the bark on my tree is perfect. Because it's going to affect your heart. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy of God. This is how vital the heart is. And this is where God wants to work, is in our hearts. 
We become enemies of God through wishing we could become friends with the world. Um, If we don't work on our desires, we lose more and more that close walk with the Lord, that fellowship with him. What is our hope here? What is our hope? And I feel kind of bad because we're going to get more into our hope next week when we look at verses 7 through 10. You know, this idea of submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's huge hope here, guys. But he starts, he, he points to it in verses 5 and 6 here. Our hope is that God really desires where he wants to work is on this deepest level of our lives. He wants to fix the rudder of our boat. To affect our lives with it. To affect our lives. So he says, I love this statement. This is kind of a weird statement, but if you look at it in this context, it's awesome. The whole verses 5 through 6 says this, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's kind of an odd statement back here. I'm just gonna, I hope I'm not confusing you guys, but I'm gonna back this up to, where is it? Ah, verse four. You adulterous people, Wow, how strong. You adulterous people. But look at that in the context of this. If I were to walk into a restaurant and um, I, maybe I was meeting somebody for lunch and I looked over and I was like, oh, that lady has red hair just like my wife. I was just kind of walking by and I was like, that is my wife. You know? And I looked there and some schmuck is sitting there just... Has her hand in his hand, and he's talking to her, and he's just, you know, like uh, schmoozing with her and stuff like that. There's going to be a problem. (laughs) You know, and I'm going to be rightfully upset with this situation. And what I do from that point is, is important, but I'm going to yearn jealously for this situation to be different. He describes here, what an amazing statement when talking about the Spirit um, or, or actually talking about God. He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He made to dwell in us. He gets upset when our heart to something else, like, like in, a, in a situation of an adultery, of an adulterous relationship, where God is saying, you have my spirit within you, and I want to see him come out. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us, do not quench the spirit God has made his spirit to indwell us when we have a relationship with him, when we begin a relationship with him. And he's looking. He loves himself. As, you know, he loves us too. But God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would have been just fine without us. They love each other. And the Father wants to see his spirit bear fruit in our lives. He wants to see that bubble up. And, and, and come out. He yearns jealously for his spirit. And, and when our hearts are fixated on things that, he's, that, that are, let, let's say, worldly, you know, using the term whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, he's not seeing himself come out because we're following our desires. We're following our heart in that situation. The Holy Spirit does not put up with us wallpapering our lust in his house. He wants, to, he wants to act. He wants to move. He wants to bear fruit. He wants to make something happen. 
So God has every plan of confronting us from the inside out, even though the bark looks nice. And maybe if you don't feel grieved by the Holy Spirit over chasing after sinful desires, I'm not a judge, you know, to draw the line with this. Scripture is. And I hope that Scripture is able to cut through a calloused heart in that situation and divide for you between the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. But if you don't sense a grieving of the Holy Spirit when you do follow sinful desires, either you've quenched him so much and I don't know what that looks like in terms of the the carnal Christian or something like that or he's not there. Remember, Romans 8, 16, God's spirit is the one that testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. And one of the times that he does that is when we're following a sinful heart and he says, hey, I don't like this. I'm not comfortable with this. And we get uncomfortable with it. Um... But God is motivated. He does not intend to keep us chasing after a sinful heart. He is glorified, as I mentioned before. He is honored. He gets glory from not our rote, okay, well, I've got this wrong behavior in my life, so I think I'll fix it by giving God some good behavior. I'll go to church and maybe I'll help out, you know, with this or that. God his intention, his glory is come and flows from our, us desiring him. His intention is to be glorified from us desiring him. A, a favorite quote of mine from John Piper is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I hope that gives you a hope that that's where God wants to take us. God has every plan of targeting our hearts, of targeting our desires. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the more that he works on us, the more he wants for us, for those to be pleasures that we desire. That to be joy that we want. He wants to work on us. And remember that the symptoms that should trigger this is in our relationships with each other. Where does that strife and that conflict really come from? Our hope also um, is that he gives more grace Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now here we are back at pride again. You know, sometimes it's like the Bible's a broken record, right? Here we are back at pride. If you remember when we looked at Genesis 3, we looked at the fact that our enemy, Lucifer, was an angel in the presence of God. And he said... I deserve a better position than this. This isn't enough for me. I deserve more. And his original turning away from God was an issue of pride. And we look at how he tempted Adam and Eve. You don't have to be God's gardeners. You could be like God, knowing good and evil. You deserve more than this. God's keeping something from you and you can handle it because you're better than this. You're bigger than this. Pride is the path of sin and humility is the path of repentance. Pride is the path of sin and humility is the path of repentance. I tell you this from experience. I tell you that what I am going to deal with this week is going to be a fork in the road between walking away from God down the path of pride or walking toward Him on the path of humility. 
And there's that promise we're going to look at next week. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. So if this week we looked at a spiritual EKG, next week it's spiritual CPR. And like I said, I kind of feel bad leaving you here. But know that when the conflicts come, it's not that other person. It's not that situation. It's not that whiny kid. What tempts us is the desires that we have. And that's where God wants to work. And that's a very hopeful situation because nobody can work like him. No, uh, no scalpel can cut as deeply or as closely or as finely as the scalpel of his word in the hands of his Holy Spirit. We have greater hope than anyone walking the face of this earth that life can be so abundant and life can be eternally significant and life can be um, maybe even a little less full of conflict. But the change happens here. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we, we just recognize that um, it's such a, uh, um, a grace from you that here you can fellowship and you can hear from my sinful heart um, how, Lord, you must be repulsed by so often the desires of my heart. But when you see me, you see the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so grateful, Lord, also that you don't leave me where I am. Lord, I may not sin as much as I used to, but my sin is more grievous to me than it was before. And I thank you for that. Lord, I, I just would ask that that as we run into situations this week of conflict, as we run into situations of irritation and um, where we want to lash out, Lord, maybe even before we do, that your Holy Spirit would, would knock on our heart and help us to remember, I'm the problem. Um, and Lord, that you would start working from there. Lord, I pray that in the discipline of our children that we would target their hearts, that we would be convicted about our own hearts in that mix and in that moment. But Lord, that it wouldn't keep us from being your emissary in that situation and, and your, um, your agent of grace. Lord, I just uh, thank you for the fellowship here and I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless it Continue to allow it to bring you glory and um, give us more and more opportunity, Lord, to bring you glory as you work on us day by day. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.